This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A revised strategy for the Joint All-Command and Control is in the hands of Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks tonight. The Deputy Director of the Joint Staff G6 Directorate, Army Brigadier General Rob Parker, says the Joint Staff's making headway on an implementation plan, too. Breaking defense reports, General Parker says he expects Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to sign off on the strategy within a few weeks. The Colonial Pipeline shutdown isn't affecting the Defense Department yet. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the Defense Logistics Agency is watching how much fuel the department has and has access to. Breaking defense reports, Kirby says the department has enough fuel on hand for, quote, downstream customers. The Army won't try to grow itself in the budget request the Biden administration will release, according to the Army Chief of Staff. General James McConville says he and Acting Army Secretary John Whitley have agreed on 485,000 active duty soldiers as the limit for fiscal 2022. Defense One reports Whitley says the Army will ask for relief from some of the missions it fulfills now since it can't grow. The Senate Armed Services Committee is considering the nominations of two more people tonight. The hearing for Ronald Moultrie to become Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security and Mike McCord to become Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller was Tuesday. Bob Hales, adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, and he was USD when Mike McCord was the deputy USD. Bob, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Chairman Reed began that hearing with a question to Mike uh, about reform of the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system. It sounded esoteric to me. What is that, and why is it so important but that's what Senator Reid wanted to lead with in asking questions of Mike. Well, thanks for the chance to be here, uh, Francis. So the PBBES uh, system is the, what DOD uses to both put together its budgets and execute them. It's important because DOD executes some of the largest budgets of any organization in the world, and of course, they influence national security. But it's also contentious. Uh, there are a lot of critics of the PBBS system. Um, and I think what you saw uh, Senator Reid uh, do is indicate that he would like some further consideration of whether changes are appropriate uh, in that system. Yeah, you wrote recently, history shows that efforts to streamline the process, such as biennial budgeting, generally haven't succeeded and that it has many useful features that should be retained. What's good about it, in your view, as a former comptroller, and where's the room for improvement in it? Well, as you indicated, I just uh, published a paper through the Brookings Institution called Financing the Fight, uh, which looks at the history and also my assessment of the process. I think the process has offered a number of important benefits to DOD. One of them, uh, it, it, it looks at uh, uh, programs together, like all tactical air forces or all strategic forces to eliminate duplication, brings an analysis of costs and benefits to bear, uh, looks at a multi-year approach. So in my view, those are things DOD wants to keep 
but there probably uh, are some appropriate reforms in the PBBS system. What, what is valuable reform-wise for someone going into the job that Mike is about to take up if the Senate confirms him? Well, there are a number of them, and I think they all revolve around flexibility. I mean, for example, uh, Congress insists that all the money in the so-called operation and maintenance account, which is a day-to-day account for DOD, be spent in the year that it's appropriate. That leads to a year-end spending spree. Some carryover would be appropriate. I tried, Mike and I tried, didn't succeed before. I hope they might. But the most important reform, I believe, is uh, PBS needs to have more flexibility to handle certain kinds of programs, especially high-tech programs and software. They change so much uh, and in, the, in, in the time that PBS takes to work, the technology may have changed and it's difficult uh, to adjust the program to reflect that. Congress is gonna have to cooperate there and give DOD a little bit more flexibility I hope uh, if there is a debate over uh, PBBS reform that that will be a centerpiece, uh, some more flexibility, especially for high-tech programs and software. I want to shift gears in the time that we have left. Obviously, the audit was a huge topic in Mike's testimony and in the questioning from the members of the SAS yesterday. Uh, Is the audit, in your view, at a point in time sufficiently where continuing the momentum, obviously he's going to pay attention to it, obviously he's going to keep an eye on it, but is Mm -hmm. continuing momentum sufficient at this point, or does it need some kind of care and feeding from the uh, Comptroller Office? Oh, it will need care and feeding. Nothing is automatic when you're trying to make changes, and and DOD will need to continue to uh, change its financial processes to move toward a uh, situation where they, they can pass an independent audit. So Mike will have to be involved, but as you say, there is now some momentum. Uh, I was struck by the calmness of the congressional responses at that hearing. And years ago when I was dealing with this, uh, they were a good deal more frustrated uh, and, and they accepted uh, something I don't think they would have 10 years ago. And it's gonna take DOD another six, seven years to ever get fully auditable statements, although they'll begin or in progress. So I think Mike has some momentum to build on, but yes, it will take his care and feeding and and I think it will get it. I would argue that one of the senators from which you took that incoming fire is no longer with us. Senator McCain um, was uh, quite adamant, I recall, in several exchanges with you about the status of the audit. Um, I'm always curious after these hearings about the questions that didn't get asked. Did you come away from that hearing yesterday thinking, I wonder why nobody asked Mike about fill in the blank? Or do you think it was a pretty comprehensive view of the landscape that the USD Comptroller will have to deal with? Well, that's a good question. I don't, nothing comes immediately to mind. We haven't talked about it. I won't say a lot, but there was, yesterday was a preview. That hearing was a preview of the budget debate that's about to take place with the Budget Control Act over. Uh, in, in fiscal 22, the aperture will be open more widely. And you saw the Republicans uh, pushing for three to 5% uh, real growth. And the Democrats, although they didn't push for cuts yesterday, uh, they did uh, They did suggest uh, efficiencies. Um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, there wasn't, if I was gonna pick something that I kind of wish had come up, it would be this issue of flexibility in the in the programming and budgeting and execution, particularly in the execution portion of, of the process. 
it, it, there wasn't any discussion of that. I think it's very important to the department. Bob Hale, thanks very much. It's great to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. You can find a link to that confirmation hearing and Bob's piece from the Brookings Institution at govmatters.tv resources. Coming next, the Air Force tries to turn a new page on old equipment. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the holdup for a modern Air Force may be on Capitol Hill. Welcome back. Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown is sounding an alarm about modernizing his service. General Brown and the acting Air Force Secretary John Roth told the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee they need more latitude to get rid of programs the force doesn't need anymore. General Larry Spencer, U.S. Air Force, retired as the former vice chief of the Air Force. Larry, welcome. It's great to see you again. General Brown and acting Secretary, uh, uh, the acting Secretary uh, Roth are not asking for anything that people haven't been asking for for decades. Any sense of what might be different this time in trying to get some of these aging aircraft out of the Air Force and getting fresh uh, pieces of equipment into the inventory? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, when I read the re most recent article, uh, I, my, the thought that occurred to me was I could have written that article five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because it hasn't changed. The Air Force has legacy systems that they need to retire and move on to a more modernized fleet. Uh, I think what may be different this time is the national defense strategy is pretty clear about what they want their Air Force to do. Uh, and I think now it's up to the Air Force to convince the folks on the Hill uh, that the mo more modern systems, the more capable systems, uh, will be more lethal, uh, more efficient. Uh, and, and better serve the country going forward. One of the elements uh, in, of this in which you are an expert is the financial management aspect of this. We had uh, Diana Maurer from the Government Accountability Office on the program last week talking about affordability in the out years of the F-35 program. One of the issues that Congress doesn't seem to have looked at very much in some of these other programs, uh, I note from this Air Force Magazine article, um, Congress um, not uh, sure about ABMS to replace the E-8C. Uh, the RQ-4 Global Hawk is a program that the, uh, the Air Force wants to look at at least uh, cutting back on, Congress apprehensive, um, and so on. There's a long list of them we could go over, Larry. Um, has Congress considered, in your view, the long-term sustainability of these programs and what it's going to cost the Air Force in the out years to keep these things in the air? It, you know, it, it doesn't appear so. I mean, obviously, I can't speak for Congress, but when you look at the result, I mean, the sustainability costs of all of these systems are going to be unaffordable. It's just that simple. Um, and one of the frustrations I had when I was on active duty uh, and talking with folks on the Hill was they tend to look at Air Force capability uh, by system, by airplane, and not by capability. So as an example, one of the... Uh, issues that has, has been ongoing for years is the A-10. Uh, close air support is a mission. It is not an air, airplane. And the Air Force has many other more modern airplanes that can provide close air support. But it seems like when you're on the Hill, folks get locked into, you know, a, a platform. They get locked into a C-130, something they're familiar with, uh, you know, an F-15, something they're familiar with. And they miss the broader picture, the broader uh, perspective of, the Air Force has missions to perform, and the Air Force is probably best to determine what systems will best perform those missions. So I think we've got to elevate this discussion 
away from platforms and into what missions does the, does the country need the Air Force to perform and what platforms then better serve those missions. I, I think your, your terminology is correct and, and maybe a little bit forgiving, Larry, as far as um, referring to programs that members of Congress are familiar with. Parochialism may be part of the problem. I quote from the Air Force Magazine article, Representative Tom Cole, uh, uh, one of the members of the Appropriations Committee, highlighted an effort by the Air Force in 2014 to cut E3A wax in a reserve unit at Tinker Air Force Base, here's the key phrase, in his district. That's, that's really the crux of the matter, isn't it, Larry? What's well, made in my district, what lives in my district or my state, right? Yeah, there, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, I think in today, uh, th there's not much that you can talk about that doesn't, doesn't get political very quickly, uh, and in particular systems and jobs and districts. So there, there's no escaping that. Uh, however, uh, when particularly now as we're going into a period that I think most pe people predict, that the DOD budget at best will level off. A lot of folks speculate may dive down some. Um, where we spend these precious dollars are important. And this is, at, at the end of the day, this is about protecting the country, our nation, not about individual platforms in individual districts. How would the Air Force and, and the other services for that matter, what, when they talk about their legacy systems, make the argument in financial management terms that X program, whatever it is, is not financially sustainable, and that's the reason we need to cut it back. Is that a powerful enough argument, do you think, to contradict the desires of some members of Congress to keep the programs that are, that are uh, valuable to their districts politically? Yeah, one of the things I think, uh, one of the great things about the Air Force, uh, and the Space Force for that matter, but the, the Air Force in particular is their missions are very diverse. Uh, you know, it ranges from from the nuclear mission to fighters to bombers to uh, to uh, 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 airplanes that uh, carry logistical uh, supplies uh, to ISR. I mean, they, they have a very broad portfolio. And the challenge the Air Force has with that portfolio is how do they explain it uh, in a way that folks will understand it uh, that it doesn't seem too complicated. So, for example, the Navy does a great job of selling, you know, you pick the latest number, 350 ship Navy, 400 ship Navy, whatever that number is today, that sticks. Um, how do you do that with the Air Force? How do you separate fighters uh, from bombers, uh, you know, from a C-17 to, you know, to uh, same similar in, in Space Force? How do, you, how do you get an acronym or a one sentence a description around all of those capabilities so that someone can 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 uh, link link onto it. There are folks in Congress today that are talking about how many ships the Navy needs. How many folks in Congress have you heard today talking about how many squadrons the Air Force needs? Uh, the Air Force, the, the number. I think the answer to that is zero. Uh, at least so I haven't heard anyone. Primarily because you know how are they going to explain the difference between a fighter squadron, you know, and a C-17 squadron or a tanker squadron? How, how does that work? So the Air Force has got its hands full, and I think a lot of this revolves around communicating that message. Larry Spencer, thanks very much. As always, a pleasure to have you on the program again. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Coming next, the shipyard shortage that's blocking the future of the Navy fleet. Straight ahead on Government Matters, solving the capacity problem that's not just a military problem. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Don't forget, if you miss an ep episode of the show, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. A new bill in Congress would pour $25 billion into the shipyard problem every sea service expert in and out of the government is warning about. Shipyard capacity is too small to support the Navy we have, according to the experts, let alone the Navy we need. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant, the chief of naval operations, and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. He's writing about the shipyard problem in the Hill newspaper with his colleague Timothy Walton. Brian, welcome. It's great to see you. The shipyard problem is greater, actually, it sounds like, from what you're writing, than the $25 billion that Congress is advocating. Am I reading it wrong? Absolutely, Francis, and thanks for having me on today. Uh, yeah, the, the Shipyard Act actually doesn't really go uh, far enough, I would say. Um, right now, we've got at least a $21 billion shortfall in terms of the infrastructure on the public shipyards that the Navy owns. Um, that's been identified by the Navy. They have a 20-year plan to address that. Uh, and on top of that, you've got a whole training uh, infrastructure that's falling short in terms of preparing new workers for shipyards. And then in the private sector, you've got the shipbuilders who have infrastructure needs of their own to be able to sustain uh, the construction of the current fleet. Uh, and then and also, you've got maintenance yards that uh, are in charge of maintaining and repairing ships that are that are already in the in the fleet, uh, and they have uh, existing shortfalls, particularly in dry docks. So there's a need out there that the Shipyard Act, I think, starts to tap into, but maybe doesn't fully address. Here's the thing about this that I think is should be something people uh, think about. You write, uh, you and Tim, the chief of naval operations recently argued the Navy needs a 355-ship fleet. That's not news. We've discussed that ad nauseum on this program for years. It's not getting its money's worth, though, you write, for the 290 ships it already has, 6,000 extra days per year that surface combatants spend in maintenance rather than on patrol equates to another 16 ships. Fixing this problem puts us over, it's, uh, over 300 functional ships. To, to, as soon as that problem's fixed. Is a 20-year plan that the Navy has fast enough to address this problem? Not at all. And so the, the one thing is the, the Navy's plan for the, the public shipyards only addresses nuclear-powered ships. That's going to help us with uh, the existing delays that we have got in the submarine fleet and in the carrier fleet in terms of getting them through their maintenance periods. Then you've got the, the private shipyards uh, that, that support the surface fleet, and you've, that's where you get the 6,000 uh, days per year of uh, delayed maintenance. Uh, and in those in those maintenance yards, they're they're totally dependent upon government contracts that are let relatively uh, you know one by one for each maintenance period with not a lot of uh, lead time. And as a result, they don't invest in the kind of infrastructure they need to improve their uh, time and and efficiency at doing the maintenance. So uh, that's where a lot of that delay comes in is in these private yards that need support to be able to build up the infrastructure that they just can't do when they're when they're doing maintenance periods uh, contracted one by one. They've got to have some kind of more enduring uh, commitment on the part of the government or funding from the government to help build up that infrastructure. Uh, because you're right, it, it could yield an effective increase in the size of the fleet because these ships aren't sitting in the yards anymore. They're actually out doing their job. The context of this, I think, is important too, Brian. Uh, the former commandant of the Coast Guard, Paul Zukov, told me recently that historically the number of shipyards that we've had across the country is, I believe he said, in the 20s. And now we have five. What's led to that deterioration, that decay of capacity, and how quickly is it reasonable to think we could build it back up with this money? Is there incentive for people to open these shipyards in the private sector, or is it up to the, to the services? 
So uh, in the ship repair business, you know, that's something that the government can help with in terms of infrastructure to improve their ship repair efficiency. In the construction area, which is what Avrozukov was talking about, um, really the way to, to improve that is to increase the number of ships being built in the United States. A part of that is the military and growing the size of the Navy and the Coast Guard, uh, but they can only do so much. Um, the other part of this is the Jones Act fleet, which is the, the U.S. domestic fleet that operates between U.S. ports. That Those ships are required to be built in the United States. Um, if we could uh, grow the size of that fleet, the size of the U.S. flagged fleet, um, that would help. Um, there's some initiatives uh, floating around Congress to try and do that by uh, giving stipends to shipping companies if they operate their, their ships under U.S. flag, um, and also maybe to supplement the, the investment they would have to make to build ships in the United States. Um, there's, a, there's a bill that's uh, currently pending to uh, make LNG carriers be built in the United States. Um, the other part of it is uh, for the government to maybe uh, coordinate its shipbuilding with that of the private sector from the Jones Act so you can try to uh, give more work and spread it around to a larger number of shipyards to expand the base. The other problem here, and you and Tim addressed this in your piece, is the workforce. If we're going to grow the uh, capacity of the shipyards, there need to be humans to do the work. What's the current state of that workforce, Brian? So it's very green. And so you know, you've got a, a whole generation of Cold War era shipbuilders that are now retiring from, from working for 30 or 40 years for these shipbuilders. They got very proficient at their jobs. Uh, they're being replaced over the last decade or so by people who are less proficient, obviously. Um, so that they're less they're, they're less productive. Um, they take longer to get work done. And you're seeing that, that impact in terms of the delays that the Navy's experiencing, both in the public and private shipyards. So um, improving the training capacity, improving the apprenticeship programs uh, to a grow that workforce and make it more proficient more quickly is going to be essential if we're going to be able to get out of these maintenance delays and try to get the fleet back up to its normal effective size. Because right now you've got, like I said, dozens of ships effectively on the sidelines. 30 seconds, Brian. What will you watch moving forward? Uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, acceleration of that uh, Navy's uh, ship build, shipyard plan, uh, trying to get more money put against that earlier and then trying to get more money to the private sector ship repair yards so they can improve their infrastructure and build more dry docks. Brian, uh, Brian Clark, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you back. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. You can find a link to Brian and Tim's piece at govmatters.tv resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, you can find it on our website, too, and you get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? 
it's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20 year old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.